You're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine, advancing medicine through precision diagnostics and novel therapies. The following program was recorded at Penn Medicine's live event, Hot Topics for the Primary Care Provider. Your host is Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Dr. Bernholtz welcomes Dr. Ari Brooks, Director of Endocrine and Oncology Surgery and Director of the Integrated Breast Center at Pennsylvania Hospital, and Dr. Brian Englander, Clinical Assistant Professor and Chairman of the Department of Radiology at Pennsylvania Hospital. Dr. Brooks' clinical areas of expertise include the management of benign and malignant breast disease, thyroid, melanoma, and sarcoma, and Dr. Englander's research interests focus on the utilization of breast imaging modalities for the detection and diagnosis of breast cancer and treatment management. Now here's your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz. We are going to focus, obviously, on some of the hot topics in breast cancer innovations for this interview, but... The two of you represent such greatly diverse perspectives on it, from the radiological side to the surgical oncology side. Dr. Brooks, I'd like to start with you and just kind of hone in on the surgical oncology side, as well as some of the areas that you've taken a particular interest in that have become buzzwords or catchwords, which is genomics and genetics sure. uh, within the field. So to start, let's focus a little bit on what's happening at Penn, because I understand that there are some new and different things going on in breast cancer management at Penn that you are directly responsible, that you're involved with. Do the options vary significantly in terms of treatment options for patients from one institution to another, or is what's happening at Penn unique? Yeah, the options vary everywhere. So I'm going to just briefly go way out of my area of expertise and talk about oncology in general, because as some of you may or may not be aware, there are some amazing things going on in immunotherapy with something called CAR T-cells, which initially were developed from the treatment of lymphoma and now are being looked at in breast cancer as well. Patients that are HER2 positive are undergoing basically immunotherapy. It's really, really, really hot stuff going on right now, and and it is only going on in the region at Penn, but that's way out of my league. That's about all I can talk about there as far as that, but that's just a really exciting area and something that we can offer our patients. Really, that's available for advanced disease patients that are stage 4 with HER2 positive cancers. As far as therapeutics that are available in radiation, which is also not my area of expertise, we have proton therapy. Rumor has it we may have it at Cherry Hill as well, which is pretty hot. And proton therapy is cool because it's very easy to focus a beam, an external beam, and treat an area with a little bit less tissue damage on the deep side and also on the near side. And so we are using that. There is an ongoing study right now at Penn comparing proton and photon. It's a randomized trial. Very, very exciting stuff that is only available at Penn. But I'm going to get back to my area of expertise, which is surgery. I think there's a lot of great quality centers around the Delaware Valley to get breast care and breast surgery. I think we excel in our reconstruction We have awesome plastic surgery, so the options available to our patients for reconstruction are huge as far as everything from implant-based to different types of flaps to combination implant and flap. And I think, surgically speaking, we have become really aggressive about nipple preservation, about minimally invasive approaches to mastectomy, and also really pushing the envelope as far as surgical pathways, which sounds really boring, but actually isn't. And those are the way patients come into oncology as far as their diagnosis and then their initial workup and their treatment. We do try to agree on a pathway that is a pen-wide pathway. By doing that, we standardize the care for our patients. We improve the quality all across. So those are basically the things we're doing in surgery as well. 
Also, just to clarify, because we are going to focus a lot of our attention on breast cancer treatment innovations for this interview, but you obviously see a number of other types of cancers as well. Do you want to just touch upon that? I trained at Sloan Kettering in general surgical oncology. One of my special areas of expertise is sarcoma, not a real common cancer. So outside of Sloan Kettering, it's hard to hang up a shingle and be a sarcoma surgeon, but something I really love. I do love weird cancers and specialize in figuring out weird problems in oncology. So that's one thing I do. I do minimally invasive approaches for lymphoma and other intra-abdominal diagnoses, which are weird. I do melanoma surgery, and I'm also an endocrine surgeon. I do thyroid and parathyroid surgery, and I do love that as well. And I want to come back to the PEN pathway that you talked about, because that moves into the idea of multidisciplinary teams. It's sort of a catch-all term now. But a number of hospitals, I find in, in my travels, use the term, but don't necessarily live by that code in the sense that some people within those teams or needed specialists, generalists, are excluded from that. What about the team approach that carries through this continuity of care from screening to diagnosis, surgery, or medical care, and then follow-up care? How is that done at PEN, through this PEN pathway? The pathways have been developed through multidisciplinary meetings that we have with radiology, pathology, radiation oncology, medical oncology, and surgical oncology all present and meeting monthly for the last year under the guidance of Larry Shulman, who came to us from the Leahy Clinic where he pioneered that concept. And it's very exciting, but there's some other elements of the pathways that are interesting. You know, we tend to perseverate about how much radiation or what drug in oncology. But other parts of the pathway that are really relevant for primary care are the fact that we need to increase the participation of the primary care providers in the care of the patients. And so communication is part of the pathway. It's actually written in there about getting back to the primary care and making sure they're aware of what's going on and also asking the patients to weigh in and talk to their primary provider about risks and benefits because some things that we might offer might require a bigger surgery that might need cardiology evaluation or other things that have to do with overall survival. For instance, treating the patient that's 85 years old has different options than a patient that's 25 years old. And so we want to keep primary care in the loop, and that's actually written in our pathway. So we're trying to be as inclusive and multidisciplinary as we can while still moving forward. Speaking of moving forward, why don't we move forward to one of the hottest topics in breast cancer treatment, which is the introduction and greater and greater involvement of genetics and genomic research that is impacting breast cancer treatment options. How have you seen that impact with the continuance of genetics and genomics um, right. with your teams. You guys have heard the buzz term personalized medicine, and so there's really two areas in breast oncology where that's become manifest, and, and I would say breast is kind of leading the charge in that, aside from our prenatal GYN partners who do a lot more genetic testing for a longer period of time than we do, but I would say in oncology, breast really led the way. And that's going to be genetic testing for risk, and that's looking at the genes BRCA1 and BRCA2. And now there's panels of genes up to 25 in a panel that you can test for. And you guys can actually order that test. I wouldn't recommend you necessarily do that unless you are willing to sit down and counsel the patient for a while ahead of time and afterwards. But they're available actually from multiple providers now, not just myriad genetics. So that's one area that's really impacted what we do. We've identified a lot of risk profiles now. And of those 25 genes in the most common panel, there's five that actually, including BRCA1 and 2, that actually impact what we're going to do as far as uh, treatment, either surveillance in a patient with yearly MRI or offering them bilateral mastectomy or offering them oophorectomy or even in one of the genetic syndromes, 
doing a gastrectomy prophylactically for patients that get multicentric gastric cancer as part of that genomic problem. The other side where genomic analysis, and this is not really genomics, actually expression analysis has come in is a test called Oncotype, and there's a whole family of tests. I just use Oncotype because it's the easiest to say. But basically, looking at the cancer that was actually in the patient, we send that out and actually do a, an expression analysis and see what genes are expressed, and you can get a profile and decide if that patient's very high risk, they should have chemotherapy plus tamoxifen or a drug like tamoxifen, very low risk, they should only have tamoxifen, or somewhere in between, and we got to work that one out. So two areas of precision medicine has really affected what we do. And for instance, the oncotype, does that type of test lead to something that you would recommend staying within the surgical oncology wing, or is that something that primary care could take advantage of as well? Well, the oncotype is really just ordered on the tumor that we have removed, so that would be something I would order or the oncologist would order to try to determine with the patient whether chemo is a good idea. I would say that through Penn, we have the Basser Center, which is really world-renowned for doing genetic counseling, and that is a really great resource and, and something I recommend for patients where you want to be able to have a, a really good discussion with them about their genetic risk for disease, and so that would be another thing that you could order would be a consult with Basser. And on the therapeutic side, what about targeted therapies, specifically those that try to exploit some of the changes within genes that help foster growth or spreading of cancer cells? What's on the horizon there from your vantage point? Well, there's a lot of stuff on the horizon. I would say in oncology, just stay tuned. I think about two years, maybe five at the, at the most, we're going to see a whole new crop of molecularly targeted drugs. But just so you guys know, the drug Herceptin has been out 20 years since the first study was enrolling. And Herceptin is a targeted drug. It blocks the HER2 new growth factor receptor in breast cancer and has taken the patients with the absolute worst prognosis in breast cancer and made them average and even better. There's a new drug in that class called Burgetta, which is out, and that has taken our response rate even higher. And so for those patients where it was really bad news on the markers, it's really turned around how we look at them and we kind of get excited when they're positive because we've got these two drugs we can throw at them. And that's actually coming for triple negative cancers and it's coming for ER positive cancers. There is one drug out there right now, Ibrance, that's used in addition. So very exciting. I'm going to move over to the radiology side. There's a lot, obviously, more that I could ask you on that, but um, just in terms of keeping with the time, Dr. Englander, I do want to move in on the radiological side of breast cancer innovations, of which you're a big part uh, in your role. Why don't we start by focusing on one of the newer breast imaging modalities, 3D mammography and, or tomosynthesis. What are the pros and cons of this modality from your vantage point as a radiologist? The major pro of 3D mammography is you get a three-dimensional image of a mammogram. The breast is a three-dimensional structure, and we've lived sort of in a two-dimensional world. And we can now see through the breast in very small slices. How that helps us is there's a relative increase in detection of cancers that we didn't see before 3D mammography. The bigger issue is that we don't have to do as many extra views. About 8% to 10% of patients who come in for a mammogram, screening mammogram, are called back for additional views. 3D mammography has reduced that by about 30 to 40 percent, which is an insignificant number of patients who don't have the added anxiety and the added cost in terms of coming back another day to have that workup done. And I think that number will actually be quite a bit slower. There's a lot of good literature, though not necessarily definitive literature, so people argue, is this still somewhat experimental? At Penn, we've adopted the approach that every woman deserves and 
will receive a 3D mammogram. So within about a month or so, every center at Penn, within the Penn Health System, will have 3D mammograms. There's also quite a large study that the Penn Health System is part of, the TMIS study, which is a NCI-funded study that is looking at what the differences and what the advantages are between tomosynthesis and 2D mammograms. And it, it, it's, it's a five-year study that's just starting now that I think will give us a lot more information to understand how this helps. And I think the big issue is that with the extended mammogram, you're not getting additional radiation. And in fact, many of the manufacturers, Siemens and Hologic, have made great strides to reduce the radiation dose to patients, which is always a big concern. And other drawbacks on the other side of it with tomosynthesis. Anything that you anticipate, for instance, with this five-year study that's going to unveil some drawbacks or cons to its usage? I think the main drawbacks is we're already seeing that certain dense breasts, which are dense breast tissue, is an area that we tend to talk a lot about, don't show that same benefit. It's nothing worse, but they don't have the same advantage with 3D mammograms, and I'm not sure whether or not that will still be true. Mm. Beyond that, I don't think we have that many drawbacks because the amount of information, we can really manipulate that information and really look for things in a way that up till now we never had the chance. Well, the subject of the dense breast brings up the breast tissue density reporting legislation that you obviously as radiologists deal with. Can you tell us a little bit about that legislation and how it impacts screening from your experience? In mammograms, and for people who've seen mammogram reports, we report breast density, and 50% of the patients are essentially not dense and 50% are dense. State by state, there have become some legislation in place that say that we need to report what the breast density legislation is, discuss it with the patient, and offer them alternative secondary screening techniques. Pennsylvania and New Jersey are among the states, New York. From each state, it's a little bit different. New Jersey, for example, had the legislation and actually also mandated that any additional imaging, for example, ultrasound, would be covered by insurance. It's not always true for other states. Really what it comes down to is that studies over many years have shown that dense breast tissue inherently has an increased risk of developing breast cancer. The simplest thought is just there's a lot more tissue so cancer can develop within that. So we really need to figure out ways to screen patients who have this dense breast tissue because things either can't be seen or they're buried into the dense breast tissue. And there are several alternatives for the secondary screening. The main one is breast MRI, but breast MRI is really for very, very high-risk patients, and you know, insurance coverage is you know, very, very spotty. So we tend to offer whole breast ultrasound, automated whole breast ultrasound, as well as handheld. There's also abbreviated MRI, which is a very short MRI scan. The disadvantage of that would be that it's an out-of-pocket expense, and there's also injection of contrast. And a few other modalities that are you know, under investigation for providing additional reassurance that we're not missing cancer, because mammography is a screening tool and really a very good screening tool. But as there is more dense breast tissue, the sensitivity and the specificity continue to sort of change because we're just not able to see what we need to see. I want to turn briefly, since we have a few minutes left, to the therapeutic side that you often get involved in or I get asked questions about, and that has to do with cryoablation. Do you think this is a viable alternative to surgery? And I'd open this up to both of you, obviously, because it gets asked about a lot, the idea of freezing breast tissue. Where does that come up in the therapeutic regimen for the two of you from your vantage points? I think from my point of view, it's, it's, it's a very exciting step forward. We've had cryoablation, which is basically creating a ball of ice, and often use it for benign tumors, for fibroadenomas. And the recent studies show that we can do up to four centimeter masses, so it's you know quite significant size. So they then started to look, based on some preliminary evidence, on how would this work with cancers and small cancers. And the early data showed that not only does it work, but there's sort of this immune-mediated response that is generated from the freezing that the most recent study of tumors, anything under one centimeter, 
had 100% success for ablating these tumors, which is exciting because I think there are certain patient populations and certain patients who may very well benefit from this. We also, some centers have said, even if they don't per se jump on that as their definitive treatment, if you biopsy something, you think it's a cancer, you cryoablate it, and then at some point they can schedule their surgery, so you at least sort of stop any kind of change or any kind of growth from that tumor. And there are different techniques. You know, the next one is sort of thermal ablation is something that we're experimenting with, which is basically heating up the tumor to do the same sort of thing. But it's a very small skin nick, very quick recovery, very quick procedure. The procedure is about 20 minutes at most, and the patient's awake with just local numbing. I guess I would defer to you in terms yeah, of your I mean, we, thoughts. We don't have a position on that yet, <laughs> but yeah, it's been around a long time. I'm very much in favor of it for benign stuff because I see a lot of ladies coming in and saying, I got a lump in my breast and I want it out. And I'm like, it's benign. And they're like, I want it out. And I'm like, it's benign. They're like, I want it out. Like, no. So they could actually get a needle and, and freeze it. And I would love that because I just don't want to do a lot of unnecessary surgery. And then the question is, what is unnecessary surgery? And I think if you guys want to write on your little thing a question for later, we could talk about the treatment of DCIS and whether there is such thing as over-treatment, over-diagnosis of DCIS. I'd love to talk about that later, and we could really get into that one. But if you think about DCIS, which is a precancer of the breast, it's not invasive. It can't spread and kill you if you do treat it somehow effectively, and that could be by cryo or radiation or surgery, then maybe you don't need to cut it out. So there is going to be an area where this local therapies that are even more local than surgery are going to be good. I'm going to cap with one question that will go to each of you, and that is sort of the forward-thinking question, the crystal ball question, looking at the future for breast imaging and surgical oncology uh, for breast treatment. Let's start with breast imaging. I know it's, it'd be one thing to say, it's looking great, but just getting a little bit more in the brass tags, where you think things are headed? I think we're going to an individuated approach to breast screening in particular. Right now, so the recommendation, and this is you know, perhaps controversial with all the other recommendations from different organizations, is that we screen mammograms every year from age 40 till the end of life. I think what we're going to do is we're really going to be able to look at patients, look at their risk factor based on breast density, based on other risk factors, and then determine how should they be screened. I guess as I've had conversations with some of my research partners, should young patients have a mammogram every other year and then an ultrasound every other year? Should some women have mammogram every other year and that's it? And I think each patient will have a different screening plan versus just this one default screening plan. And I don't think we're that far off from it. I think we're getting pretty close in terms of the technology we have and the ability to assess risk and tie all of those together and then also throw MRI in and fast MRI and also nuclear medicine has its own modality and really create a plan for someone that when they leave the imaging center, they can be given a sheet and say, this is your five-year plan of come back every year, come back twice a year, and really work it that way. Yeah, I think in surgery overall, not just in breast or surgical oncology, we're just getting less and less invasive. And I think the time will come when we will be super selective about what we're doing. And I think the era of the bilateral mastectomy treatment of everybody and the radiation treatment of everybody is going to go away. And we're going to get a little bit more specific about getting that tumor, treating that person effectively with local and regional systemic and guided therapies, and maybe lower the morbidity. That might put me out of business, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> well, on that note, from two critical factors from the Penn Pathway, <laughs> I'd like to thank Dr. Englander and Dr. Brooks. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. To download this podcast or to access others in the series, please visit reachmd.com slash pen. 
and visit Penn Physician Link, an exclusive program that helps referring physicians connect with Penn. Here you can find educational resources, information about Penn Medicine's expedited referral process, and communication tools. To learn more, visit www.penmedicine.org slash physician link. Thank you for listening.